Full Court Fits is The Ringer's new weekly NBA video series hosted by Big Waz, aka Wozni Lambre. Each week, we take you around the world of NBA fashion and share can't-miss style choices from your favorite players and keep you up to date on the latest news and releases in sneaker culture. Waz also talks to experts like Damian Lillard's personal stylists to give you behind-the-scenes looks at how the NBA's biggest stars choose their outfits. New episodes drop every Friday, so make sure you're subscribed to The Ringer's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash The Ringer so you never miss an episode. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Joining me today for this special emergency breaking news edition of the podcast for Friday afternoon on your commute home, maybe, uh, our Ringer staff writer, Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. I'm glad you didn't trade me. Man, I was just about to make a joke about trading Ben, but here he is. (laughs) Ringer staff writer, Ben Lindbergh. Say hello. Woo. Hi, happy to be here. Happy we survived. Yeah, this was fun. This was active. I've been pretty pessimistic about uh, trade deadlines. We haven't been seeing big prospect returns. We haven't been seeing a lot of blockbuster deals. Maybe some of that was COVID. Maybe some of that was baseball's ongoing capital strike. Maybe some of that was the cowardice of GMs and ownership. But they are cowards no more. We have had more trades than we know to do with in the in the past week, and particularly in the past 24 hours. That was just a goddamn trade deadline. They did it. Everyone did the trades. What more do you want? There was something of every kind of trade. We had superstars traded. We had top prospects traded. You had intra-division deals. You had multiple fire sales, which I guess is good news for some people and bad news yeah. for others. So you had Multiple intra-city <laughs> deals? Yeah, very good teams getting great, teams on the bubble getting better. Almost everyone who was expected to do something did something, at least seven significant. So some fans are going home happier than others, but no one sat out this deadline except, well, maybe the Rockies, but we'll get to that. Yeah. Sarah Langs tweeted that 10 players who are all-stars this year have been traded. That is the most players to make the all-star game and change teams in a season. And that's something. I don't know if any of these were particularly surprising trades. I think we all expected Chris Bryant to be traded and Nelson Cruz to be traded and Joey Gallo was probably going to be traded. But I think that everyone who was expected to be traded actually was, save the Rockies, is something because usually we see all these big rumors and then they are not fulfilled. But this year, almost all of them were fulfilled and they led to exciting prospect halls. They led to really interesting new lineups and rotations and playoff races. And Mike, just like two weeks ago, you asked if the stratified playoff races meant we would get a less exciting deadline. But I think if anything... I was wrong! (laughs) Yeah, the fact that there are like 15 teams just all going for it at once led to kind of an arms race. If you're the Blue Jays seeing the Yankees make an upgrade, you need to also. And if you're the Dodgers seeing the Padres potentially go get Max Scherzer, you got to go get Max Scherzer instead. And uh, why not throw in Trey Turner while you're at it? So I think that arms race element really helped uh, amplify the excitement. It was fun watching on Twitter all the the drama unfolding over the specifically the uh, the Scherzer Turner deal, but we were also getting the the impact of the Yankees trading for their two large Italian American boys, uh, and so all that was going on while the NBA draft was was happening, and there were trades there. I presume I don't know all that sort of buzzed past me, but it makes me feel like a very NBA Twitter po- toxic positivity ish. This league, this league. <laughs> Yeah, when was the last time we said that about Major League Baseball? Oh, I say <laughs> but, it all the time, just not in that tone of voice. Yes, in an in angrier tone. <laughs> but yeah, I think, Zach, you really hit on it there. Like, no individual player who was 
this moved shocked me. Like, was there a single player who was sent somewhere that you thought, I can't believe that guy got traded? Like, just about everyone. Madrigal? Yes. Yes, Okay, that's true. Uh, Yeah. Austin Martin, too. Yeah, well, prospects, I guess. There were some prospects who were were traded or or young major leaguers in Madrigal's case. But all of the veterans, all of the the high-profile, very prominent major league players, they had been on the block, and yet it was the fact that almost every single one of them got moved, where usually it's, oh, well, something didn't come together at the last minute. So Rockies aside, everyone actually got their deals done. And and I haven't had time to run the numbers yet because we are recording in the moments after the deadline here, and I'm just having my hands full trying to keep track of where everyone plays now. But just from previous articles I've done post-deadline to look at like, you know, most players moved or most wins above replacement moved, just my my internal sense is that this is going to stack up very high and possibly higher than any deadline we've seen. This like reminds me of, I don't know, when I was a kid and I actually had a, a stake in things and there were some big deadlines that excited me. And ever since then, I've been sort of let down <laughs> generally more often than not, but not this time. This kept us busy. Yeah. If anything, I think I spent so much of today focusing on all of today's deals, all the Cubs who were traded, Jose Barrios. But the real difference maker, the biggest difference maker, I think, came last night. And it's almost easy to forget that now Max Scherzer and Trey Turner are Dodgers just because so much happened today. But I think that's really what got the juices flowing is that one deal. And then there was the domino effect from there. I guess like other trades had come earlier. The Joey Gala trade had come earlier. But in terms of the biggest impact, and I I don't know, would the Giants have traded for Chris Bryant if the Dodgers didn't make those upgrades? Maybe not. So I think that was the real turning point to let me know, okay, this deadline is going to be wild. All right. I sense Zach's natural impulse toward organization (laughs) steering us toward... uh, going and breaking down some of these trades individually instead of just (laughs) shouting in a completely disorganized manner for the next 45 minutes to an hour. So let's start with the big one, which was announced last night and consummated and made official. uh, I apologize for using that word. Made official uh, this afternoon. Max Scherzer and Trey Turner to the Dodgers in exchange for Kiebert Ruiz, the top uh, catching prospect in the Dodgers system, one of the top prospects in all of baseball, as well as pitching prospects uh, Josiah Gray and Gerardo Carrillo and outfielder Donovan Casey. Uh, I said in my uh, winners and losers column that Ruiz is probably the best prospect to move at the deadline uh, in about four years since Eloy Jimenez in the the Jose Quintana trade. And uh, we'll see that that might actually be a controversial statement based on the some other prospects we moved today. But this really kicked into gear that this was the not fucking around deadline. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's that's what, honestly, that's the kind of prospect you should be asking for. And then some, if you're going to trade Turner and Scherzer, but uh, this was a huge deal. And with all the big deals that follows, probably will go down as the biggest one of this deadline season. And what made it so phenomenal for the Dodgers is they don't even really need Ruiz because they have Will Smith, who is the best young catcher in the majors right now. So I think ever since Smith supplanted Ruiz in in the Dodgers pecking order, they were looking to trade him at some point and they finally cashed in. And it's hard to imagine a better package they could have gotten in return, both getting Max Scherzer and keeping him away from San Diego when it had been rumored Earlier on Thursday that Scherzer was headed to the Padres. Now the Dodgers add another starting pitcher and they could use one uh, to join Walker Buehler at the top of the rotation, form a great trio once Clayton Kershaw returns from injury. And Trey Turner also fills in in the infield. Corey Seager is supposed to return this weekend. So now uh, I wrote in my reaction piece to this article that they can now trot out a, a lineup with eight players, the worst hitter of whom this season has been Corey Seager. And that's if they move Trey Turner to second base and then Chris Taylor to the outfield. They can now bench Cody Bellinger while he figures out his own slump. And if Bellinger bounces back, then they have the kind of flexibility and backups and platooning that we know the Dodgers love. So the Dodgers have been hit hard with injuries this year. It's worth remembering there are still three games back of the Giants. So even though all of us would probably agree they have the best 
the best roster in baseball and they added the best pitcher at the deadline. They added the best position player to change at the deadline. There are a lot of superlatives you can give the Dodgers here, but they are still three games back. So it's not like some other Dodgers teams where it's, oh, we just need to make upgrades for once we arrive in the playoffs. Every game matters for them right now because they're trying to catch San Francisco and avoid the wildcard game. And Scherzer and Turner are certainly going to help them do that. Turner, I should add, is also signed for next year. Scherzer's a free agent after this season, but Corey Seager's also a free agent. So if they don't re-sign him, they can just have Turner play shortstop next season. Yeah, as much as we get excited about deadline deals, most of them, especially the ones involving rental players, don't ultimately end up mattering that much. You know, two months post-deadline and a player or two, there's only so much value you can provide. And more often than not, that's not going to be the difference between winning a division and not winning a division. But this trade could be the exception. I mean, the Dodgers might have won the NL West anyway. Certainly they were favored to according to, let's say, the playoff odds, which have continued not to completely buy into the Giants all of this time. But the fact that they were three games back of the Giants, they made this move. Not only is it a huge move in that they landed the best pitcher and best position player moved at the deadline, but they also kept Scherzer from their direct division rivals. It was pretty clear, seemingly based on the rumor mill, that he was going to go to one of these NL West teams. And it's not even clear that the Dodgers needed him the most of the three, but they ended up getting him and they blocked the Giants and the Padres from getting him. And really, as shorthanded as they've been, they've still been excellent, but it's a dogfight. And this race has been, if not Shohei Otani, it's been the best storyline all season. Just this NL West dogfight, which has turned into a a thrilling three-team race instead of the two-team race that we anticipated. And you got to hand it to the Dodgers here for using their financial might and also their prospect powers. You know, they paid the salaries of these players for the rest of this season and and will be paying Turner going forward. So as paying Scherzer until 2028. Yeah, well, not until 2028, I guess. Because (laughs) of his ridiculous national special deferred salary. Right. But it's still, you know, a competitive balance tax hit on top of their already having the highest penalty there. So whereas you saw the other Titan on the other coast, the Yankees make major moves, but do their utmost to stay under that luxury tax threshold, They, uh, the Dodgers were willing to even add to that. And I did get a chance to run the numbers on this one because I, I blogged about this one. And between Duffy, who we didn't even really mention, right? The, the Dodgers also added Danny Duffy from the Royals and Scherzer and Turner. This was the most year-to-date war any team has ever added over a a two-day span. So it's pretty impressive, really. And you got to hand it to a team for actually outmaneuvering A.J. Preller at the trade deadline once, right? Like, I I kept waiting for him to make the major splash, and it's not as if he did nothing. You know, he ended up getting Adam Frazier and Daniel Hudson and Jake Marisnik, and am I missing anyone? But clearly they wanted Scherzer, and they were going hard after Jose Barrios, and They didn't end up with either of those guys. So for once, we saw frantic trade activity and A.J. Preller was not really at the front of it. Yeah, that is. Well, speaking of impressive things, that's a very impressive stat you've concocted. I want to say that before we get too far in the uh, uh, too far down the road. Yeah, this this race, I think, is one of two things that really animated this trade deadline to be what it is. And like, I love this as a screw you from the Dodgers to the noisy neighbors that like the element of this that I love most is that it kept Scherzer away from from the Padres and Giants, because that could have been legitimately dangerous to the Dodgers having Scherzer in that rotation, particularly if that's what kicks uh, if that's what kicks the Dodgers into a wild card game, then they have to face Scherzer. You know, not like facing you, Darvish, is going to be that much better, but uh, they're not taking any chances and they're really, they're really, you know, swaying their wallets around. And this is how a big market bully ought to behave. And I think that it did so much for the, um, for the, the tenor of this trade deadline and the NL West race, which, like Ben said, is just, has been incredibly compelling so far and will just be more so, I think, in the next two months. You know what? That reminds me of, Mike. You'll appreciate this analogy. In the first Mighty Ducks movie, when Gordon Bombay doesn't just add Adam Banks to his team, but he takes Adam Banks away from their closest rival. And that is, you know, Max Scherzer is the Adam Banks of this analogy. I think it fits because they are both players at the top of their craft who can get kind of crazy when they're on on the mound of the ice. 
So here we go. Uh, that is my anal- my hockey analogy midway through the MLB trade deadline podcast. I hope he's slightly more durable than Adam Banks was, you know, because Adam Banks is always going off on a stretcher at the the end of the climactic game. Uh, let's put a pin in like three different things and go to the other uh, side of this trade, which is the Nationals. This is maybe the most fascinating team at the deadline to me was the Nationals who got swept by the Orioles and then the day before the deadline, like in between the Brad Hand trade and the and the Max Scherzer trade, uh, blew a 7-0 lead to the Phillies in the second game, but doubleheader. And this team went from, well, maybe we should run it back to just blowing it all the way up. Uh, they brought in 13 players. They sent eight out, and those eight players are due $91 million in salary this year, including Turner and Scherzer, also Kyle Schwarber, Daniel Hudson, Brad Hand, um, Josh Harrison, Jan Gomes. Uh, who am I missing? John Lester. Uh, so they've really dismantled a team that was supposed to be a contender. And I think There was always a strong suspicion that it could go this way, but particularly now that we know that Steven Strasburg's future is is on hold with uh, thoracic outlet syndrome, um, that there are questions about Patrick Corbin. Like this team looks like it's headed for a rebuild, and you know the Nationals were sort of a joke franchise for the first you know first seven eight years of their existence, and it's going to be weird living in a baseball world where the Nats aren't really one of the the top that you know one of the biggest highest spending teams most competitive teams in the national league yeah i mentioned that the dodgers added the most war ever over a two-day spin the nationals subtracted the most ever over a two-day spin so if someone's adding someone has to be subtracting and yeah it's a bit of a bummer for nationals fans obviously to lose almost every prominent player on that team in a day or two i don't know who is exactly going to be in the lineup when the nationals play the cubs post deadline here but I think they were in a position where it made sense to do something like this. Like, I think it's more defensible that the Nats are doing the teardown rebuild than that the Cubs are doing it, right? And they got a lot of guys back who are not far away, right? Especially the guys they got back from the Dodgers, for instance. I mean, they're major league ready right now. They could step into that lineup and be part of the the next core, the future core with Juan Soto. One would hope that having traded almost everyone else, that they would now find the resources to extend Soto just to reassure their fans that, hey, he's going to be here at least and we're going to build around here. And it's easier said than done to just take the core of a World Series winning team. And, you know, despite the fact that that was not a, a dynasty exactly, still a lot of good players and now they're essentially resetting. So it won't be the smoothest ride ever, but. The Nationals have really, and Mike Rizzo really, they've resisted other opportunities to do something like this. Like they've always wanted to be in it. And this time, I think finally it made some sense for them to do this. And if they were going to do this, then it seems like they got a a pretty good return, all all told. Yeah, I I look back on the lessons that we can learn from previous Nationals, uh, I'd say reloading. The first is that they let Bryce Harper walk and then won the World Series the next year. And that's because they reinvested in the team immediately. The money that they weren't spending on Harper, they spent on Patrick Corbin. And Corbin ended up being a, a huge component to, to that World Series team. The other thing is they pulled out of the very living earth a corner outfielder who's better than Bryce Harper. And you can't take that for granted. Whatever happens with this team, however long it takes them to to rebuild, whatever happens to Gray and Ruiz and the other prospects they bring back, they cannot let it get to the point where Soto's considering walking. They need to either rebuild the team to become competitive before he gets uh, close to free agency or they need to lock him up to a, a long-term extension. Because I think, like you said, Ben, I think that there's the logic of, of doing this now is obvious. This team's getting old. Uh, they had a lot of guys, you know, I think everybody except for Turner that they traded was a pending free agent. Uh, so it makes sense to to tear it down now, but they can't just sit here and think, oh no, we've got $55 million a year in sunk costs sitting with Strasburg and, and Corbin, like we just got to ride this out because it, it will be unforgivable to let Soto walk. And, uh, you know, if there are, and we've seen, you know, the Tigers are still on their, their rebuild. The Orioles are still on their, on their rebuild. The Phillies are, are 10 years out of the playoffs now. Uh, it's not 
I would almost say like it's unlikely that they'd come back and be competitive again without significant reinvestment in the next three years. And so they've got to keep that in mind. And I think what happens to this, like the next couple moves will go a long way towards determining how we look at at the the last week of Nationals history, five, 10 years down the road. And it's worth noting, I think the prospects they got back have both played in the majors already, Josiah Gray and Kiebert Ruiz. They can be major league ready right now. And the Nationals' other top prospect, uh, Cade Cavalli, who's a pitcher, is already at double A. So while the Nationals have only three good prospects, which is two more than they had 24 hours ago, all of them could be in the majors like next year or the year after that at the latest. So I think that speaks to what you're saying, Mike. They can reinvest in free agents now and still put together a pretty good core around Juan Soto. It kind of similar to what the Twins have done. We'll talk about them in a bit, I'm sure. But the Twins added like four near MLB-ready prospects at this deadline in the the Barrios and Nelson Cruz trades. And I think that speaks to the Twins realizing, well, this season just stunk all the way around and we'll, we'll reload for next year because we think we have a core that can still be competitive. And the Nationals certainly got rid of more components of that core than the Twins did. But I think the philosophy can still kind of work the same. Ruiz can catch next year and Gray can be in the opening day rotation next year, along with hopefully Strasburg and Corbin and kind of make the Nationals competitive as early as 2022. All right, let's go to the Cubs teardown. Uh, and we'll use that because they traded with about eight different teams. We can use that, the tentacles of of Jed Hoyer's activity to take us to most of the, the other... Uh, really active teams at the deadline. Let's let's get this out of the way. Chris Bryant to the Giants for right-handed pitcher Caleb Killian and outfielder Alexander Canario. I I think the Cubs did pretty good in general. Is anybody else shocked that nobody beat this? I wonder what teams were left to go for Bryant because I think the the Mets and the Giants were the two most obvious Candidates, the Mets traded for a different uh, Cubs position player. So by the time all the other moves had been made, I wasn't really sure what teams were left to bid other than San Francisco. And I think you're right. Of the various Cubs trades returns, this is the most underwhelming, in my opinion, especially when we thought, like, could Joey Bart be the guy to go back to Chicago? And these are certainly lesser prospects. So I guess it's better than just giving him the qualifying offer and getting the comp pick in the draft uh, because Canario in particular is a real prospect. But yeah, I think this is the least exciting prospect return from Chicago's perspective. Great for the Giants because they're keeping pace with the Dodgers and they're still three games ahead. Yeah, Chris Bryant, that's the youth movement in San Francisco. How about that? But I think (laughs) it's really, I mean, it was efficient. I guess we can give them that. Once the Cubs decided that they were going to do this, the question was like, can they trade all of these guys in one fell swoop? And the answer is yes. Yes, they can. And, you know, this is uh, ending really a, a situation that has hung over this team for years now. Will they extend any of these players? Will they surround them with complementary players? Will they invest in this roster and try to sustain? this. And for a while, the answer now, unfortunately, has clearly been no, they were not interested in doing that. They traded you Darvish instead of trying to add to you Darvish last winter. And that sort of sealed the fate of this team and of this championship core. But there was still some question, you know, right up until the end, will they actually just cut out the beating heart of that 2016 team that's still around? You know, it's not like these guys are old. It's not like the Cubs are some small market team. Like they certainly could have kept these guys together and continued to build around them. And they opted not to. And once they opted not to, they were just really ruthless about it. I mean, Bryant and Baez and Rizzo and Kimbrell, just all of them going in the span of a day or two. I I guess Cubs fans have been bracing themselves for this, but it's still just got to be pretty devastating to see that happen, to not really get a great chance to say goodbye. You know, a lot of those guys didn't play in the last game or two that they could have. and. That sucks. Yeah, it does. I mean, obviously, you understand, you know, someone can get hit in the wrist with a pitch or something, and that 
that sabotages the deal that you've been laying the groundwork for for weeks or months. But still, for them not to have what Scherzer got with the Nationals, you know, one last moment in the sun, one moment to get a standing ovation, that is a, a big bummer, I think. And, you know, the guys they got back, clearly they acquired a lot of talent here. But I guess if you were to compare the Cubs hall to the Nationals hall, and, you know, it's not exactly apples to apples here, but there are maybe fewer major league ready high ceiling guys, although, you know, ringer MLB favorite Nick Madrigal is on this team now, which was the the one thing that we did not see coming. Yeah. So the other players they got back, they got Nick Madrigal and uh, pitcher Cody Hoyer back for Craig Kimbrell from the White Sox. They got uh, younger minor leaguers, Kevin Alcantara and Alexander Vizcainu from the Yankees for Anthony Rizzo. And they got Pete Crow Armstrong, the Mets first round pick last year for Javi Baez and Trevor Williams. And I thought some of those prospects returns were pretty good given the rental nature of who they were trading in exchange like I did not expect I thought they did real well for Rizzo yeah, yeah. I, I was gonna say Rizzo getting back to real pretty good prospects uh, in part because the the Cubs are paying Rizzo's salary because the Yankees are terrified of the luxury tax the Yankees of all teams terrified of the luxury tax but what is capitalism <laughs> coming to but Mike as you wrote just a couple days ago the going rate for rentals had been getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and that kind of reversed this year that the Cubs Rizzo trade being the first example of that to me, I kind of looked at that askance, but then seeing the prices today too, like Pete Crow Armstrong is a darn good prospect to get back for half a season of Javi Baez. So I thought that we, we got a new trend this year, or at least a reversal of a trend we had been seeing. Yeah. I don't know how much it reversed. I think some of that is like the nature of the guys who got traded, like Scherzer also laundering Scherzer in there with Trey Turner. I don't know which of those prospects would have gone in just a a Scherzer trade versus just a a Turner trade. We, you know, we just talked about the Brian trade being kind of underwhelming. I think, yeah, I think the Yankees sort of paid sticker price for, for what's a pretty cheap, uh, end of the pool to swim in. And that's, veteran guys on expiring contracts. And so you can see, I I like a lot of the players they got. I think they did really well getting magical for all his flaws and for all his injury concerns. Um, Getting him for a relief pitcher who's not going to, who's under team control next year and is not going to be making substantially less than his, his market rate. Even if he is the best one inning closer of the, you know, since Mariano Rivera, um, but at the same time, like all this is colored by it sort of stinks that the Cubs are in this position. Um, but that that being said, I think they did OK. I think some of these these deals were better or more creative than others. But as a as a package, you can you know, you could see the direction if that's what if, if that's what they want to build around. Who gets good again first, the Nationals or the Cubs? The Nationals. I think the Nationals are going to want to get good again first. I don't like the Cubs are a real estate company. <laughs> right. And they, they're subsidizing the Nebraska governor's race more than they <laughs> more than they care about the National League Central. Like mm-hmm. I being good if and this is here. We, we've actually got a segue with the Dodgers and the Yankees. Like being good in baseball these days is mostly about giving a shit. And actually investing your resources in the major league roster. And when you're developing prospects, not hugging them, but actually using them to either either through promotion or, or through trade, like the even the Padres who didn't have that good a deadline, uh, they're really good at weeding out the ones they want to keep versus the ones they want to try to sell high on to get ex- established major league talent. And, you know, the Yankees... How many other teams in those in in their position would have traded out significant prospect capital to get two fairly expensive veteran players? Um, I mean, even even if they did get the the Cubs to to eat salary, like they're invest. It's so easy to to hug guys uh, like what they gave up for for Gallo and Rizzo, but they're saying no. Like we're three games back. This is winnable. Like the Mariners are gettable. The A's are gettable. And we're the goddamn New York Yankees. And we're going to get these two gigantic Italian-American guys. And and that's what they did. And I mean, they're probably going to make the playoffs now. Can I read you? So the Yankees are in Miami tonight. So they have no 
designated hitter. Can I read you their starting outfield, uh, which was announced while we were recording? Left field, Giancarlo Stanton. Center field, Aaron Judge. Right field, Joey Gallo. I love this so much. Like, you know what you do best, and you're just steering into the skid. Yep. I I added up the the math. The hev- it, Once Luke Voigt gets off the IL, the heaviest credible defensive lineup the Yankees could could uh, um, come up with weighs more than 2,300 pounds, uh, including designated hitter and pitcher. And you could actually run these guys out there with either Judge or, or Gallo in center. Just get bigger, man. I love it. <laughs> According to yeah. Jeremy Frank, this ties the all-time record for tallest outfield but kind of cheap because the record it's tying is when the Mariners used Randy Johnson in the outfield for Ben G chatted me about so, this <laughs> last night. I was <laughs> yes. Jeremy Frank also tweeted that uh, this sets the record for a starting outfield height. So, <laughs> as you would expect, it's uh, and all of those guys, are, or at least a couple of those guys. The thing with Gallo and and Judge, at least, are that they're good at defense. I mean, Gallo's very good at defense. You would not expect that for guys their size, and I don't know how long that will continue to be the case but it's not like you're running dhs out there those guys can actually go get it yeah so, I, I believe uh over the last three seasons among all outfielders defensive run saved bets number one gallo number two judge number three so it's not like they're really compromising their defense by sticking one of them in center those three uh starting yankee outfielders are three of the four current major league position players listed at six five two forty five or more <laughs> yeah, I love it. All year long, Yankees fans have been complaining about this lineup and how it hits too many of homers or actually, you know, is designed to, but doesn't hit enough and strikes out too much and doesn't get enough hits and, and hits in the double Cashman. plays. <laughs> yeah, Gallo, well, Gallo, Gallo does not hit do in the double plays <laughs> right. and Rizzo doesn't strike out. Yeah, well, that's true, I guess. Yeah, Gallo just hits so many fly balls and, you know, strikes out so much that he doesn't hit into a lot of double plays. But they really doubled down on the, like, low average, high power giant with Gallo. Of course, those guys are lefties. And one of the frequent refrains, the complaints about the Yankees this year is that they've had almost no left-handed hitters, which does seem strange and silly in Yankee Stadium. I mean, I think that is somewhat overrated. You know, Mike Petriello took a look at what moving to Yankee Stadium means for Gallo. And it's a few extra homers here and there, but he also just hits his home runs and all of his fly balls so far that they often would be out of just about any park. So he's doesn't really need the help. So I think, you know, if you have a a great right-handed hitting lineup, then that's fine. You know, I would sign up for that. I think the lack of a lefty has been magnified just because some of their righties haven't produced the way that you would expect them to. But between those two guys, and yes, uh, you know, it evens out the lineup a little bit, the lefty-righty balance, and Rizzo is uh, more of a contact on base guy. So it it maybe makes things a little more symmetrical there. I don't know if that's enough because, you know, as we speak here on Friday afternoon, they are, what, three and a half games out of the second wild card spot, which is occupied by the A's right now. The A's got better, too. The Blue Jays, who are a game behind the Yankees, they got better as well. Yeah, a lot better. Yeah, the Mariners are in between the A's and the Yankees. They didn't clearly get as much better, and also they're just not as good to begin with. But still, it's not a cinch. I mean, there are other good teams contending for these spots, so... I think uh, Cashman assuaged the fans who've been calling for his head all season long and did it without uh, making the poor Steinbrenners open their wallets too wide. But it's far from certain that they will end up sneaking in. Although, you know, I think they are the best team of that bunch, even though they have underperformed greatly to this point. Let's talk about the team right behind them that also decided to go all in. And I think this was... This was a bit of a hair raiser uh, in in terms of trade value. Um, the Blue Jays made a few trades, but the big one was getting Jose Barrios from um, uh, from the Minnesota Twins. The Twins, who had a pretty big active deadline themselves, um, but uh, it cost them Austin Martin and Simeon Woods Richardson. Uh, Austin Martin is uh, one of the top position player prospects in baseball. Simeon Woods Richardson, you might remember from the. Uh, uh, Marcus Stroman deal a couple years ago, uh, good right-hander currently on 
Olympic duty. Uh, so this, he's the second Olympian the, the Twins have traded for since the start of the Olympics. Uh, but that's a lot to give up for Barrios, who's a pitcher I absolutely adore and who I think is a great fit for Toronto. And I still went, okay, like, I don't think it's a bad, it's, it's not bad considering he's, he's, uh, under team control for another year, but this is a, a risk that might've been more than I might, would have been willing to pay in, in their, um, in their shoes. Yeah. He was what they needed. Obviously they've been mashing that lineup and pitching, you know, it, it's been better really than I expected. Probably in some respects, some guys have stepped up and they did need arms though, I think to back up the bats. And is this enough? I don't know. Like if it, gets them there if it gets them to a wild card spot and a wild card game is that worth giving up the two guys that they gave up and given the fact that it's far from a guarantee that this does get them over the top you know it does set them up fairly well for next year where you have Ryu and you have Brios and you have Manoa and maybe you get some other help and you know even with the the Robbie Ray breakout or the latest Robbie Ray breakout like they really did need this it's not the only thing that they needed. So I think their fans would have been pretty disappointed if they had stood pat just because they really were so aggressive and so active over the offseason. And it was clear that they thought this team was ready to turn the corner, that it was time to spend. And giving up money is one thing, giving up prospects. And, you know, we've criticized the the Blue Jays in the past, right, for, for hoarding prospects or for just like toting up years of control and bragging about how many years of control they acquired. So, you know, I guess if we're going to criticize them for that, then maybe we should praise them for going in here, even though they're losing years of control. But it is uh, a lot to, to lose and to stomach. I will mention that I wrote a piece a couple of years ago in which I found that prospects who are traded tend not to turn out as well as prospects of a similar rank who are not traded. And I'm not saying this is necessarily the case with Austin Martin or, or Simeon Woods Richardson or any of the other prospects who are traded this week, but the Blue Jays know those guys better than anyone. So I think the very fact that they were willing to trade Martin, I know he's a somewhat divisive prospect because scouts are unsure whether he will ever access power in game. And the fact that the Blue Jays were willing to give up on him makes me think maybe he won't ever access that power. Kind of like the Starling Marte Jesus Lazardo trade earlier in the week made me think, okay, well, if Oakland's willing to trade Lazardo, then I'm going to round him down in my estimation at this point, because they've had a closer look at Lazardo than anyone. And they wouldn't be willing to trade him if they weren't concerned about him too. So I don't know if that's the case specifically with Martin here, but I do think that we have advocated in the past that teams should be less tied down to prospects. And that's what Toronto does. So even if the price was probably a little higher than I expected to, Mike, I, I am going to credit them for making that effort. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's I don't think anybody made a buy now trade that I'm that I like don't get. Uh maybe the the Kyle Gibson deal. Um, but apart from that, like these big trades where we're Big time prospects change hands. Uh, they're risky, but I don't think they're they're unjustified risks. And you know, to Ben's point about is it worth it to get to the second wild card game? I think it is. I think making the real playoffs uh, means a lot. Uh, in Toronto, we saw how that that city reacted to this team in 2015-16. The other thing is, if you put Hyunjin Ryu in a one game, uh, you know, one game winner take all scenario, backed by this lineup, like. I like my chances if I'm Toronto against anybody, including the Yankees with Garrett Cole. Like, I think that's a really potent combination of pitcher and lineup that ought to scare anybody uh, in a one game um, in a one game playoff. So uh, but to to Zach's point, I want to bring up Craig Goldstein uh, mentioned this, that a lot of the guys who moved a lot of the big names in terms of young players who moved today are in that Austin Martin mold where Maybe they don't have the same flaw, but there's some something about them that makes them divisive. And I think Madrigal falls into this um into this bucket too. Spencer Howard uh is another big, big young pitcher who moved uh today. Has, you know, there's some people who like him and some people who think, you know, think he's barely a big leaguer. And uh that self-scouting thing, you know, some teams are better at it than than others. Uh, but it's a big, you know, it's a big point of competitive difference from one 
um, from one organization to another. And I think that is a useful, you know, it's a useful piece of data as we're evaluating these deals. So, you know, maybe the the twins think they can get, they see something in Martin that uh, they can get out of them that the Blue Jays can't. But um, yeah, I, th- I think that that is worth considering that the Blue Jays do know him uh, better than anybody and and seem to think that he's, you know, not so good that they they can't part with him in this trade. Another player, another young player with similar concerns about a lack of power is Madrigal. Uh, we should talk about the White Sox for a second because I think if the Yankees leaned into their power, the White Sox leaned into their strikeouts. They added Craig Kimbrell, they added Ryan Tapera in, I guess, separate deals from the Cubs, and now they have what I would deem the best bullpen in baseball with Hendricks and Kimbrell and Tapera and Aaron Bummer and Michael Kopech and Garrett Crochet that's just seven great relievers uh, in their bullpen and add that to the, the, the best rotation in baseball. Yeah, me. the rotation we were gushing about on the podcast last week. And I think now this is a phenomenal pitching staff and entering the season. I think I was more excited about the White Sox because of their lineup. And yes, they've had injuries. Now Magical, who was one of those injured players, has been traded. The The White Sox did add Cesar Hernandez to play second base. But I think this kind of changes the complexion of the American League race a little bit just by virtue of imagining trying to overcome a late deficit against this team. Like if Rodon and Lance Lynn and Giolito can give five or six good innings per game. And, and we know Mike Lance Lynn can give more than five or six good innings in a game, but that's all the White Sox need to be successful in the playoffs now. And you didn't mention that Aloy Jimenez is back in the big leagues and Luis Robert is not far behind. So this team has weathered the storm and, you know, giving up magical is huge, but I think Cesar Hernandez is a, you know, I, I think he's a limited player, but I think he's actually kind of a perfect, perfect fit for this team in this offense. And I know there are some concerns about Tony Russa as a playoff manager at this stage of his career. And so maybe part of this is just LaRusa proofing your roster. I mean, I know he's uh, maybe bunted a bit more than he should have and maybe made some questionable bullpen decisions. But really, can you make a questionable bullpen decision if every one of your relievers is really good? Like, no matter who you send out there, you're in pretty good shape. So, yeah, I, I don't know that there's uh, there's clearly not a better team in the American. American League at this point, right? There's no team that is scarier just as a regular season team, but also as a playoff team, because it seems like if anything, their strengths should play up in October. Yeah. And it in terms of Larusa proofing, like he loves the one inning closer. Well, you just gave him the best one inning closer in the league. Yeah. And now that frees up Liam Hendricks to maybe pitch multiple innings, maybe return to that fireman role he originated uh so well in Oakland. Like I think this this gives them a lot of options. And in terms of like look, like nobody's talked more crap about TLR than we have. But like I you know, I think he can be arrogant and incurious sometimes, but he's not stupid. Like he's not gonna complete, you know, he's not gonna send Jimenez up there with the bat backwards in the World Series. Like I, I think with a good roster in the playoffs, I, I think he's probably gonna be fine, particularly if the pitching staff's this good. I mean, this this team went from good, you know, good pitching staff to to scary in a big hurry. I love when a team adds a great bullpen arm because it's not like okay, it, you know, the Yankees getting Anthony Rizzo. Yes, it fills a first base hole, but it doesn't really change the rest of the roster. Whereas adding Kimbrel, now you can just slide everyone down a peg, so it, it makes your eighth inning better, and your seventh inning better, and your sixth inning better, and your mop up relievers better. And I'm not sure if that's properly captured in a statistic like war, but I think there is that linking impact that just matters so much with these ripple effects. Yeah, and your best relievers pitch a higher proportion of your postseason innings than regular season innings. And even though Kimbrel's not necessarily the guy who is going to be, you know, getting you six outs, maybe if you know you have him in reserve, then Hendricks, as you said, Mike, could be that guy. So there is a an extra bonus there. Before we wrap up the AL, should we just touch on the A's briefly? Because they're the team that the Yankees, the Blue Jays have to get through, presumably, if uh, unless we think that 
everyone's going to unseat the Rays. And and the A's were busy. Again, I'm trying to like keep track of all of the moves that were made. But Andrew Chafin, Starling Marte, Josh Harrison, Jan Gomes, those are significant upgrades and address some of the, the depth issues that the A's have had. And there's so much uncertainty surrounding that organization as a whole, where they will be playing, and just the the current roster, really, because uh, a lot of these players are arbitration eligible, and we know that the A's are not going to loosen the purse strings. So I don't know exactly, you know, the A's, uh, they are kind of perpetually reshaping themselves. They've never really done the fire sale, tear down, rebuild. Maybe they do a step back to, to borrow a Jerry to photo term, but they're kind of constantly turning over and often they end up with a a collection of players who no one except the A's really seems to believe in. And yet here they are, at least for now, in playoff position. And to their credit, they made some moves, you know, which is not unprecedented. Like the A's will not spend typically, but they will make trades to upgrade at the deadline. And they did do that here and and at some significant cost. And, you know, the Jesus Lizardo for Starling Marte trade, that is a, a fascinating one. It's my favorite, my favorite single trade of this yeah, deadline season. It, it really is. I mean, Lizardo, you know, extensive injury history, Tommy John surgery, shoulder strain, video game banging his hand hand against the table. He's kind of had it all and he has also pitched poorly this year, but entering the season, he still had, you know, among the highest expectations of of any young pitcher in the league. So the fact that they not gave up on him here, Marte's a good player, but the fact that they moved on, I don't know whether that means that they just think he's a change of scenery candidate and they he needed some other message from some other organization to blossom or whether, as Zach said, when a team trades a young player that in theory they know more about than any other organization, it could be a potential red flag, especially when you have a guy who has struggled to stay healthy the way that Lucardo has. Yeah, I think all that's all that's relevant. I, you know, I I maybe some of this is also kind of unkind to Starling Marte who uh, ben, I know as a player, you've said good things about in the past, but like he's got a 400 OBP. He's good in the, in the clubhouse. I think he's an ideal, particularly for a team with a good defensive center uh, center fielder and a huge hole in a corner to fill. I think he c- could barely fit the ace better. Um, and so, you know, getting Miami, which is not exactly a, a team that's flush with cash to begin with, to pick up his entire salary, maybe it maybe this doesn't mean they're that you know, they're that down on Lazardo. Maybe that's just what it took to get the player they wanted at the price they needed to get him. Um, so I think, you know, I love one-for-one trades. This is the Marlins obviously had had a great one a couple years ago with the gallon for Jazz, uh, Jazz Chisholm uh, trade, but uh, I don't know, I, I'm really excited by both ends of this because it's, it's two players I like a lot who are going to be, um, I think, in good situations for both of them. Can I read you a quote? I want you to to try to identify it. I just saw this quote uh, past the timeline. I am confused and I don't have really anything good to say about the situation and how it unfolded. This sounds like a quote I could apply to many things in life. Do you have any idea who said this today, Mike? That sounds like Bobby when I forget to send him my, my file. <laughs> Trevor Story talking about wow. what happened with the Rockies. What a quote. That's... Uh, this spicy. is from Patrick Saunders at the Denver Post. <laughs> We're all confused, Trevor. Yeah, I mean, yeah, nobody's more confused than than uh, <laughs> than we are by Trevor Story's immobility. This is the one shocking thing. I think, like every single one of these trades, I sort of had an inkling. You know, there were some, like you know, like Martin, Magical, Lazardo, guys who maybe younger guys who I thought maybe weren't going to move. How the hell is Trevor Story still in Colorado? The only thing I can think is that teams were semi-scared off or, or lowered their offer somewhat just because Story hasn't been his best self this year. He's had some injury issues or concerns about him not throwing as hard, not f- hitting for the same power that he had. And Bill Smith, I guess the Rockies interim GM, said they set their value for Trevor Story and were never close to making a deal with anyone. So 
you know, maybe they were just overvaluing him or other teams had some slight doubts, or maybe it's the fact that they don't actually have a permanent GM right now. Like if you're a Rockies fan, I guess the upside would be, you know, they will get compensation picks, right? They can make him a qualifying offer and maybe they'll actually have like a competent GM in place by then. I mean, Are you that's, sure, Ben? <laughs> no, I'm not at all sure, but it's <laughs> at least a remote possibility that they might like maybe kicking the can down the road here and waiting until you have someone who is running the team <laughs> other than the people who are kind of running it right now might actually work out. Like I could see with some of the players, you know, Herman Marquez, for instance, who was under team control for a while, like they didn't necessarily need to move him, but not moving Story, not moving John Gray, who, you know, said something about being open to an extension. Like, it's just strange. And I, you know, it seems like the Rockies, historically, they've kind of had blinders on when it comes to their own guys and their own teams. Like, they always seem to think that their guys and their teams are better than everyone else thinks they are. And they persist in those beliefs despite just being proved wrong repeatedly. This is the so, flip side of Ben or of, of Zach's uh, South uh, self-scouting thing. Yeah. So I, I guess the silver lining is if they had traded him, they probably just would have screwed it up. <laughs> so You want to <laughs> Want to know what my theory is? Yeah. The deadline this year is Jul- is July 30th because it's on a Friday and they didn't want to do the deadline on a Saturday. Uh-huh. I think they just didn't know that the deadline was a day earlier, <laughs> earlier this year. And they fully expected to trade Trevor's story tomorrow. They thought, wow, you know, if, if that's what Javi Baez brought back, imagine how much story's going to get when other teams have had 24 hours to sit on that. Yeah, could be. It's funny because in... Any other situation where a pending star free agent doesn't get traded by a team that has no chance of making the playoffs, you'd think, okay, well, maybe they're going to sign him to an extension, and that's why they didn't want to trade him now. There is zero chance that Trevor Story... He's confused. He's not happy with the situation. (laughs) He's not going to sign an extension. I guess I would have said there's a 0% chance they don't trade him, but there's no way that Trevor Story is going to be a Rocky next year. Yeah, so one team that unlike the Rockies seems to have somebody in the driver's seat uh, and is coming off a disappointing season. The twins were pretty uh, proactive as well. Not as proactive as they could have been. There were rumors about trading Byron Buxton or using him as, as uh, a carrot to get somebody to swallow the rest of Josh Donaldson's contract, but they traded Cruz. They traded Brios. You know, what do we make of, of the, the moves the twins made there were, I'll, I'll admit to this. They're not in my column. They probably made more trades than any team that, that didn't make the column, but this was so busy, the damn thing would have been 8,000 words long if I had written up every trade. So I apologize to Twins fans, so we're going to cover them here. Yeah, I think someone like Cruz, who is obviously going to be a free agent and they could bring him back if, if they want to, I think it, it makes sense to make a move like that. Rios, I definitely don't think they needed to trade him because I don't think they are far from contending. Like this isn't a, a case like the Nationals or or even the Cubs or certainly the Rockies where the road ahead is, uh, well, rocky. I guess I'll reuse that word. But the Twins were my pick to win this division <laughs> this year, which, uh, oops, wish I could take a mulligan, mulligan on that one. But the reasons why I like them then are not so different from the reasons why I like them for 22 or 23. So I think they probably had to be blown away to move Brios. And it sounded like the offers were maybe even stronger than they had anticipated. And we just sort of praised the package that they received for him. So getting what they got back from the Blue Jays for him, you can see why they made that move. But I'm not shocked that they didn't do a total teardown because I, I don't think they're that far from contending. Like it, it, it's not impossible that they could even go into next season and have a legitimate shot, depending on what they do between now and then. And, you know, Byron Buxton, I, I think it would have just been so difficult to work out anything with him, right? I mean, they talked to him about an extension and that seems to have fallen through. And then they were talking about trades. How do you value a player? Right, like exactly. Like it's he's, impossible. He's I mean, so, he's it's so, got to be so hard to to either sign or trade just because one the, of the best players in baseball when he's on the field, but is never on the field. So do you pay him right. like the guy he is when he's playing or the guy he is when he's on the IL? You have to find some middle ground there, but that's really difficult, obviously. So I'm not surprised that they held on to him and either they'll hope that finally he does manage to stay healthy or I guess it just becomes clear that that this is who he is and will always be. But 
yeah, I don't think they had as much incentive to to just divest themselves of of all uh, impending free agents or anyone who was you know going to be a free agent in the next year or two because there's still a lot of talent in this organization. I will say there was about a, a ten minute span where I thought the Astros might be getting Buxton because one of the lesser discussed trades from the hour leading up to the deadline was the Astros shipping Miles Straw to Cleveland and. Miles Straw is a fine player. I don't think he's anything special, but he's he now had... the best offensive outfielder Cleveland's <laughs> had in the past five years. But Straw had been the Astros starting center fielder. They don't really have anyone to replace, and they're calling someone up from AAA, it appears. But I was wondering, like, is there a reason they're trading Straw? Who are they going to get back? And Buxton seemed like the obvious candidate there. So I think that would have been a really wild trade if Houston had gotten Buxton. Obviously not. And I think if you also look at the the twins division, there's no reason they can't contend next year. I don't think Detroit's going to be ready. Cleveland probably won't be very good next year. They'll be pretty mediocre. Kansas city could be better, but again, they're a young team that has to prove it first. So the twins already kind of start this, the off season before next year, second in the AL central pecking order. Yeah. Trading Barrios almost leaves them in a tough situation because they were going to need him to contend next year. But it, I mean, as we've said four or five times now, the guys they got back are not that far from the majors. So maybe they think that um, that they can solve some of those problems internally. Uh, one thing that we haven't talked about that I did want to get just because uh, this is this is our horse that we have to put down. Um, the Seattle Mariners and Jerry DePoto, uh, I don't know if we have a minor key version of the song, did something super weird. Uh, they they had an inspiring comeback victory against the Astros uh, in which Kendall Graveman uh, took the, got the win. And then the next day they traded Kendall Graveman to the Astros, nearly sparking a clubhouse mutiny. Jerry DePoto says, I have a plan. Trust me. And he ends up trading for Diego Castillo um, and Tyler Anderson. And I think if you want to look at this from a perspective of uh, are, you know, are the Mariners, better now than they were last a week ago? I think the answer to that is unquestionably yes, but uh, this just feels like a, a weird, it's a weird situation. I mean, and you talk about a team that maybe should have uh, overpaid for a rental Chris Bryant. I know I've said this five or six times and never been entirely serious, but I'm going to say it again now that it's too late for it actually uh, <laughs> to happen. Uh, ben, do you think that now, I'm not going to ask you first because you're going to say no. Zach, do you think that <laughs> uh, that Jerry may have completely fucked the chemistry in the the Mariners clubhouse by doing the, you know, making trades that make sense, but making them in the wrong order? Well, I think given that the Mariners have wildly overperformed their run differential and we're probably going to regress anyway, now we can blame it on losing the clubhouse chemistry. I like that answer a lot. That's a great answer. But actually, yeah, like, I think Diego Castillo, even with a worse ERA, is a better pitcher than Kendall Graven right now. I think Diego Castillo is awesome. I look at him pitch in, in the playoffs, and I don't understand how anyone can hit his slider, which he which he's throwing more this year. So I think if they had just added Castillo and spun off Graven and just made it a three-teamer, then it wouldn't have looked like a step back. But I think the fact that both the Graveman trade came first and he didn't seem to inform the team about it. If you read Ryan Divish's piece, they were talking about how DePoto just sits up in his suite and plays fantasy baseball and doesn't actually talk to the players. And I think clubhouse management is an important part of a management job. So I think th the order was wrong. And who knows if it'll affect how they actually play. Like Kyle Seeger probably isn't going to go to the plate next game and think, oh, I wish we still had Kendall Graveman and I, and I had been told about the trade before it happened. So maybe it's just an intangible thing, but uh, it certainly led to a story that I had never seen before about guys throwing things in the locker room and, and cursing DePoto out off the record. Ben, I want to ask you this question this way. Uh, DePoto was sort of asking for patience, asking for the the team and the fans and the, and the public to trust him. And given how long the Mariners have been out of the playoffs and given that this is like their fifth encouraging 80-odd win season that's 
probably not going to come to anything. And they finally seem like they're on the, the verge of something, maybe not this year, but in a year or two when, you know, when like Rodriguez and Hancock and some of their top prospects come up, you know, and DePoto, as much as he's become a fan favorite on, on this show, he's made the playoffs once in three stops as a GM. And that's, you know, at what point does that, you know, does that call for patience start to fall on deaf ears? Like we've seen GMs and, you know, I'm not accusing him of doing this intentionally, but we've seen GMs say, trust us, just be patient. And then the, the rebuild or the promised land just never comes. And, you know, how long should it take to, for, for a front office to wear out its welcome? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to take the long view when the long view in the rearview mirror is not making the playoffs for 20 years. But I think the core that they have, the talent that they've assembled, maybe it's taken too long, but you have to like the outlook for the Mariners in this division, I think, as much as any other team in the AL West. So I think it is coming together, and I think it was sort of a tough spot this season because this team is playing way over its head. I mean, no offense to the Mariners, like it's impressive that they're in this position, but it's really largely a a product of like winning all their one-run games and their extra inning games and being incredibly clutch, which is great, but probably not repeatable. And so DePoto was sort of in a tough spot because when you're the Mariners and you haven't made the playoffs in eons and you're anywhere close to a playoff spot, then of course you're expected to go for it. But how much would you really want him to go with it, go for it, knowing the the strengths and weaknesses of this team? Like part of being an executive is taking that more dispassionate view, right? As opposed to the players who are throwing things in the clubhouse because their friend and closer and, and leader got traded, right? So sometimes you have to be willing to make moves like that, you know, and maybe like the Rockies aren't willing to make moves like that sometimes. And so it can be beneficial. And it's kind of ironic that, DePoto is the one who seemingly has no feel and angers everyone in the clubhouse because he's one of the few GMs who was a player and knows what it's like to be he's in that position. Got to have more big league playing experience than every other GM in the league <laughs> right. put together, and right? Also, it's kind of unfortunate, I think, that they happen to be playing the Astros right before the deadline and that they happen to have this big emotional comeback right before the deadline. Like, he doesn't control the schedule, so the timing there was awkward, but obviously he could have handled it better. Like, I I tend to think that that will blow over a bit and that, as Zach said, like, the regression that was coming anyway will coincide with people still being mad about this, and so maybe that will be blamed but I think probably both in the short and long term, it's a better team than it was with Graveman before any of these moves were made. And I wouldn't have said, yeah, the Mariners should go all in and trade their top prospects for some of the other established stars who got traded because they are just not quite good enough yet. They're almost there, but they're not quite there. So I think you kind of want to go half in with a, a team like that and not you know, give away the future, but at least give yourself a chance in the current year. All right. Uh, unless there's, I don't know, either of you guys have any trades that we didn't get to. There's a lot, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'd be here for another hour if we wanted to talk about every trade. Okay, so let's go to the unnamed weekend preview segment. Zach, have you combed the schedule and given us something to watch? Easy choice: Cubs versus Nationals. The big question is, who is left on either of these teams? Who will be pitching? Will you, random fan along the third baseline, be told to grab a glove? Will you, random fan sitting over the bullpen, be told to go throw on a mitt and you know stretch out your throwing arm and come in and throw an inning? Uh, I'm kind of morbidly fascinated to see what kind of pitching matchups we get this weekend, what the lineups look like. Will they look like split squad spring training game lineups? I think this will be a really fun series to to just kind of monitor from afar, maybe check in and see what the lineups look like before the game start, uh, and then turn your eyes to the actual playoff previews we might get elsewhere on the schedule. Ben, how about you? 
Yeah, the actual games feel like an afterthought. <laughs> this this was like the main event was uh, seeing your your who weekend would end up series where. take a nap. Yeah, that, <laughs> I considered that <laughs> basically yes, but you know I think there's some good matchups here, right? There's uh, Astros Giants, which is I guess a matchup of the teams with the best records in their respective leagues, and some new faces joining each of those teams. So that's something we really didn't talk about the Mets, I guess, because producer Bobby's not here today. But they yeah, did. Yeah, that's another reason we're in such a good mood. It's Bobby's <laughs> on vacation. They did get Javi Baez, and uh, Baez got his wish of teaming up with Francisco Lindor or Will when Lindor is healthy. So that's a, a new addition that Mets fans will be able to see against the Reds, who also rearmed a bit. And you got Red Sox Rays, which uh, should be pretty reliably entertaining. So there's stuff to watch. Really, no matter what team you turn on this weekend, you're going to see someone who was not on that team two days ago. <laughs> so there's going to be something new and novel wherever you look. All right. Uh, perhaps true to form. And Ben, I'm surprised you didn't go here, given the odd hours you sometimes keep. Uh, the Olympic baseball tournament is heating up. Uh, it's underway. Team USA beat um, beat Team Israel uh, in their opener. This weekend, we're going to get to the medal round, uh, the knockout round, including one of our favorite uh, words, as we discussed on the podcast last week, the repishage. So uh, that's been pretty good. There have been a couple of good games so far. Uh, if you're up in the middle of the night, I would recommend turning on whatever streaming site you can find it on and uh, watching some Olympic baseball. Eddie Alvarez had a couple hits in, in the U.S. opener today. We talked about him last week. We talked about Simeon Wood, Woods Richardson. We talked about um, Joe Ryan uh, had the, the win today. New Minnesota twin. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, so Olympic baseball. Uh, I have to stay on brand by not actually recommending an MLB series. But uh, after all that discussion and all that uh, animated uh, animated conversation about, I think, a really thrilling trade deadline. Like, it. This is the second after the All Star break. Like I feel really good yeah. about consecutive baseball's on a baseball roll. things. Yeah, like let's keep this going. <laughs> uh, so let's keep this going in terms of good feeling. But now we're going to end the show. Uh, so that'll do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB Show. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, where you can find us exclusively on Fridays on the Ringer Baseball feed. You can find uh, on that same feed Baseball Barbecue where Jake Mintz, I hope, has not been eaten by bears in Indiana uh, by the time you get to this show. Uh, thanks, as always, to Zach and Ben for joining me. Thanks to Kaya McMullen, who pinched it uh, as our producer today, uh, along with Mike Wargon for producing today's show. Thanks to Trevor Story, Joey Gallo, and Max Scherzer for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the weekend's action, and we'll see you next time. 